This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This week, I have James Reynolds of Tenebrist Global uh, on the podcast. James is a hyper growth investor, and we met at ValueX Vail uh, this year. Reason we met is actually kind of funny. You were the only person, James, that pitched a company that was growing more than 5% per year. Which perked my ears up. I was like, oh, wow, a company that's growing faster than GDP. This is fascinating. And, you know, long story short, we end, we, we end up fishing in the same ponds, looking at the same kind of stuff. Um, and I think you were like one of the closest people to my age. So naturally gravitated during, during the conference. Um, but I don't really know too much about your background and kind of how you got started investing and really diving into your process at, 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 at Tenebris. So um, let's start with the background. How did you get started investing and what kind of led you to really diving into this as a career? Mm, that's a great question. So my dad probably gave me the first exposure to investing. He started, he wasn't in the space, but he started picking some stocks on the side around the great financial crisis. And so, I mean, I was relatively young. I mean, that's probably 14, 15 years old at that point in time. So it wasn't anywhere close to making a career of it, but that was always in the back of my mind. And then going into college, trying to think about possible career routes, had a family friend at a hedge fund in New York, you know, thinking finance is a potential route. Shout him a little bit. He talked about flying around the country, meeting with management teams, trying to pick investments based off of, um, their individual strategies and i guess he was doing regional banks so it's a lot more macro type of uh influence than than anything i really look at but uh that that was particularly interesting to me as well 
and then I had a few internships in the space and like slowly inched my way over from like wealth management, did some like a banking internship, had a multifamily office internship, which really gave me my first exposure to picking direct equities. There was a small midstream MLP portfolio that I got to do some research on, which was fun. And then from then on, I really went all in on buy side equities. So started the CFA program, started applying and, and cold emailing different funds in Boston. And it was a lot harder breaking in than I'd expected. I mean, I, I didn't really like talk to anybody. I didn't seek out advice of, of how to get in. And so I graduated with offers from areas that I wasn't interested in, private equity, the multifamily office I'd interned at offered me a job, but nothing that really fit the buy side equities role that I was looking for. And so I went back to multifamily office and I was like, Hey, you know, I really need some help. And he pointed me in the direction of a couple of emerging managers in Boston. And one of them ended up being Shaw Springs. So I started there as an intern kind of like fall after graduation. This is late 2015, just doing really, really basic research work, like one-off projects. I did a loyalty and rewards uh, write-up for our research on visa and the payment networks and understanding credit cards broadly and then maybe like a, a macro type of uh regression econometric analysis for transdime transdime was one of our investments at the time uh, just trying to understand how their backlog works and everything and then after that i did a massive project a big deep dive on my own on tjx companies which um, if you talk to any of my friends, like I'm, I'm still kind of like obsessed with that company and, and, and shop there a lot and whatnot. And, uh, and then we landed, so I guess we were like probably 10 million at the time and we landed a $50 million endowment account that obviously gave us you know, a tremendous amount of incremental budget to, to bring another person on. So I was hired after interning for probably about nine months for free, doing five-ish, four or five days a week at Shawspring and then kind of like two, three days a week interning at another fund in town um, called Par Capital, which had been around for a while, a really great tracker, but kind of under the radar. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I broke in and just ended up working there, um, you know, growing at Shawspring and, and uh, adding value there and, and becoming a, um, you know, prominent member of the team there. Uh, so intern to analyst, senior analyst, partner, head of investment research. And then about almost two years ago, embarked on my own to launch Tenebris. So that's kind of the, the, the quick rundown in a nutshell. There's a lot that we can pull from for that. And I'm, I'm going to try to kind of pull as, 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 as many things as I can. You mentioned the, you know, going and, and starting getting your CFA. And, and the only reason I bring this up is because I saw a tweet about this yesterday where I think it was CFA charter holders, like underperform on average or something. Um, fun, fun, fun managers that don't have one. And so, you know, for myself that doesn't have a CFA, I was like, Oh, right on. But, <laughs> but um, no, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting how that charter, that kind of designation is kind of like a college degree where like you just, it's, it's, it's almost diluted at this point. Yeah. I've never seen that before. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, when we're hiring interns, and I guess just my overall philosophy on pedigree and credentials and, and whatnot. Um, I really don't put a ton of value on that. I don't even put a ton of value on my own CFA. Like I, I think I learned a little bit here and there and it definitely filled in some gaps in other areas. 
like fixed income, derivatives, um, allocating to hedge funds and alternative assets that you probably don't get as much exposure if you're just doing you know, equity research. And so that was helpful, but those it's so many hours and those hours can definitely be better spent elsewhere, just reading and practicing investing and, and, and reading all the books and shareholder letters that everyone points to. So yeah, it doesn't make, it doesn't surprise me that the type of person who goes and tries to get a CFA, just like an MBA or any type of additional credential, like they're not necessarily probably the most outside the box type of thinkers. So it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me that that, that group and that cohort kind of underperforms. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, it was, I'm glad I did it. Those hours could have been spent better elsewhere, but it's not something I put a lot of value on. And you did a lot of deep work at Shaw Spring, some one-off projects, like you mentioned, and then others kind of like really deep dives into, into companies. When you, when you look back on kind of your time spent and research spent, and this is something that I'm really internalizing, especially over the last month after talking, you know, to a couple of people that I consider mentors, how much, um, how much weight do you put on trying to know all the information you can versus just getting to the point where you know enough to be dangerous? And then once you recognize that every incremental hour you spend trying to learn just a little bit more about the business actually doesn't add value. Like how, how, how has that kind of process evolved over time? Yeah, totally. So at Shawspring, we had massively chunky positions. <clears throat> so I think on average, it was tw like 20 or 25% positions. They got up to 40% and we really never had anything smaller than 10%. So when you have that level of concentration, you kind of do need to know almost everything. Right. And we had a bigger team than I have now, right? So there's two, two people doing the vast majority of the investment research while I was there. And so we really only, if we had an existing book of, of five investments and we were just trying to find one more great investment every single year, that's basically two years, that's 24 months of manpower between the two of us just trying to find one investment idea. So we could spend so much time. I, I could spend three, four, five, six months just re researching one industry and one company. And that wouldn't necessarily have been um, a bad use of time. Because I mean, if, if both of us did that, you know, that's what somewhere between two to eight stocks research between the, the two of us, two industry or, or industries as well. Yeah. And so it made sense just from all of that time. And we had the resources and the time to, to try and understand every single last thing and put together these extensive hundred page reports that, you know, sometimes I joke about it. Like, you know, you, you, a lot of people try to know every single last detail and, and they'll maybe, you know, they'll know what the CEO's dogs, you know, pet food brand is or, or what have you. And, and that can be helpful for marketing a little bit, maybe, if they're in a conversation with an allocator and, and, you know, you can state the most unique or uh, nuanced uh, data point on the company, but no, it really doesn't move the needle. So like, as I've, as I've done my own thing and been significantly more time constrained, 
and I guess slightly less diversified or slightly more diversified. Like I, I don't have like 40% positions and I have positions that are, are below 10%. Like there's really no threshold at which I need to need to have a 10% position in order to put anything on. Like I'm happy to have a three or 5% position and start there. I've definitely tried to cut out the noise and, and get more towards kind of like a, an 80, 20 rule with, with my investment research. So I think that's, the right approach for me and in terms of trying to figure out like what you're actually cutting out from the research process like I've gotten better at filtering the world down to what really matters and so I think like the original filters I put on are one the company needs to have the ability to to revenue at a minimum of 30 percent annually for the next Mm. five years so like top one or top decile revenue growth is extremely important to me. And then the other primary filter I put on before I even begin any research is that it needs to be a founder owner operator. So these are some of the filters that I put in t- in order to shrink the world. And then thereafter, once I'm doing the research, it's really about finding companies quickly that are long-term thinkers. They're investing more than their competition in building out the customer experience that's going to um, be the best over a 10-year plus period. They're the most innovative players. They're, they're launching products and features at a clip that's significantly quicker than any of their competitors. They have robust ecosystems of, of partners and multi-sided networks. Um, and they, they're really long-term thinkers about um, building culture and being a mission-driven company and having values that align with their customers and their suppliers and their partners um, and whatnot. And so it's really driving down to what's most important from that perspective. And then in terms of what I need to know before I make an investment? It's a tough question, right? Like it's, it's, it it's, 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 it's tough to itemize it. And while you, while you think about that, the only, the only reason I ask is because I have a, you know, like I said, I have a mentor who is a very private investor, but he's, I want to make sure I, I, I get this remotely right. He's compounded, I think close to 18% for the last 20 plus years. Um, and he's done it very quietly. And he's done it, um, you know, just just by your standard, buy great companies and and just do nothing. And I asked him this question. I said, because we were we were discussing a, a a new idea that he was that he was pitching me. And I said, how do you know when you've done enough work to buy this position? And it's obviously a function of the percentage in your portfolio, which you kind of alluded to earlier. Where if you're taking these mega twenty percent bets the amount is going to be a lot higher than if you're saying, you know, I want to take a starter 5% position. But what he told me was, yeah. but what he told me was, was enlightening. He said, I only need to get 80% of, or 60% of the way there for me to get comfortable making this bet. And he said, I'm always going to have somebody that's going to know more. Even the industry analysts aren't going to know everything. And if I can get to 60%, then I can feel comfortable enough buying this thing and holding. And to me, that mm-hmm. was like extremely insightful. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think the the idea of being like the these or, or of aspiring to be the most knowledgeable investor on a particular company, unless it's you know a smaller microcraft, is probably unrealistic. There's always going to be someone with a more limit as a generalist, right? There's always going to be someone with a more limited universe. Like I have buddies who you know work at pod shops and they only cover the auto sector. Right. So he's got a 10 stock coverage and it may be only like auto supply chain. It may not even count the OEMs. Right. So they're covering the auctions and a few retailers, maybe a few parts suppliers. I'm never going to know Carvana as well as, you know, that investor because they spend their entire time just focused on eight to 10 stocks. So it's just, it's unrealistic Um, in terms of like what I don't know i don't know what i don't know before before i invest i go through the entire process i think which is basically reading through all of the expert transcripts i have to talk to management before i invest because yep. i need to get a sense of how they think about uh about the future of their industry and their approach to I want to understand their long-termism, how long-term they think, how they think about culture. And there's things that I can, I can cut the idea based off, you know, one conversation with the CEO, if he has very generic answers to, you know, thoughts about how he's building the, the company culture, he or she. And so I go through the whole process of talking to them, talking to IR, reading all of the expert transcripts I can find, reading core initiations, going through the, the IPO prospectus, reading most of the 10K, um, reading probably most of the earnings transcripts. I probably don't read every single last one. So I think it's, it's more so going through the entire process and getting to a point where I feel like I've exhausted the most important resources out there and that there isn't a ton. I kind of just... I kind of just try and get a sense for myself if I feel like there's anything, if I can come up with something that I don't know very easily, then there's probably still work to be done. But yeah, I don't, I don't try and be the smartest investor in in every single company that we invest in. And I want to press in a little bit on you talking to management, because this is one of the things that I found interesting when I, you know, every, every so often I'll kind of shoot you a company idea. And, and one of the text threads uh, that we had, you're like, you know, Hey, I, I just, you don't really do too much work in a name until you've spoken to management, which I find like a really interesting hurdle rate where like, it's not worth your time digging into this company unless you can speak to management and kind of get them on the phone and get, and get a feel for them. When, when you're, chatting with them what are some red flags that that you tend to find in businesses that you either pass over or you you know you end the call and you're like man like if i want to short i mean i don't I, I don't know if you do short but if i wanted to short like i would i would want to pick this mm-hmm. yes yeah, so i don't know if like the the red flags with a management team are always correlated with the companies i look to short I talk to management first because that's usually a, a bottleneck to me being able to invest. So if I can't talk, if they're not going to grant me access to management before I invest, then that's just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to have an ongoing relationship 
with the company, either with the management or the investor relations on at minimum a quarterly basis. That's not necessarily, it's, it's primarily because like in the off chance that something goes wrong, I need someone to speak to, to understand what's going on and what their approach is to fix things as soon as possible. And that's just not the case if, if I don't have a relationship with the management team. And so it just, it just serves as like uh, a way to cut companies out quick that just aren't going to work with my process. And so in terms of like speaking with the management team and, and their red flags, like it goes back to what I said earlier. I asked a lot about, ask questions to try and understand how long-term they think. And so if I think they should be investing in logistics and owning inventory and they're, you know, really, really focused on uh, an asset light marketplace, then that's just not, there's going to be misalignment between how they're approaching things and how I think the industry is going to evolve. So I'd say I also, in terms of, it's also important for me to have an understanding of, of how the industry looks in, in 10 years. So like modes of distribution, um, market share between potential players, offline versus online penetration rates. These are the types of like understanding big regime changes or platform shifts. Like an example of a platform shift would be um, desktop to mobile regime changes would be like from asset light marketplace to vertically integrated delivery to the kind of cloud kitchens and, and dark kitchens that we see popping up in the, in the food delivery space. So if their viewpoint and their investment into their business doesn't match what I, where I see the industry going and where I see these regime changes taking the industry, then it's just not a good match. And then if they're not thoughtful, and like I said, if they just give a, a really super generic answer about how they're thinking about their team culture, what type of people they hire, the characteristics of a, a good employee, the characteristics of a bad employee, if they don't look to actively promote employees within and they would prefer that people stay in their role and if they're not happy with that role, then that's fine if they quit and, and they like to hire new people from outside the company. That's just, I, I don't think that that's a good approach to, a, a, you know, employee attraction and retention and, and yeah. a healthy culture. Best companies I've seen find ways to promote from within and actively look to do that. Restaurants that take, you know, associate managers and, and whenever they're opening new stores, they make those associate managers like, you know, the general manager, or I'm investing in a company called Progeny and they have an active basically like job board within their company and they allow anybody within the company to apply to jobs in different divisions. And so like, they're going to maximize retention doing that and minimize, you know, churn of employees and, and the overall happiness of their employees is, is going to be maximized as well because people are always going to be in the roles that, um, that they want to be in and they feel like that there's room for for growth so those are some of the things i look for you mentioned progeny is that pgny yep walk us through that business i haven't heard of that and i i'm, I'm always looking for new ideas it definitely meets your criteria for revenue growth though i'll put it i'll, I'll put that out there it's grown yeah. it's from 2017 to the last 12 months 48 million to 473 million that is quite impressive 
So walk us through yep. the elevator pitch and then um, we, can, we can kind of maybe dive into it a little bit more. Yeah. So the main pitch is that infertility is an issue globally and particularly so in the U.S. because it hasn't historically been addressed by health insurers, unlike in Europe where that's, you know, covered. And so the, the utilization rates of fertility services in the U.S. are significantly underpenetrated because it's an extremely expensive out-of-pocket expense. Right. And so what Progeny does is they partner with self-insured employers to help them basically provide fertility services to their employees and that helps with attraction and retention of talent overall, particularly uh, female talent and particularly in more competitive areas like technology. So right. you'll see like prize technology companies are big adopters of progeny services. So what they actually do is in-house, they're basically a customer service layer. So whenever their employers, patients, you know, are trying to get pregnant, they want to um, provision fertility services, they can call a progeny, they'll have um, these patient care advocates to kind of walk them through like how the process looks. And then they'll connect the patients with progeny's captive network of fertility clinics. And then they can go get the fertility benefits there, all pretty much paid out of pocket by the employers. And it helps, like I said, attract and retain talent, and it helps minimize the volatility in annual health insurance expenses. Because what happens is if you're a woman trying to pay for this out of pocket, um, or you're trying to minimize, like, let's say they, they run out of their benefit very quickly, yeah. then it's going to create a really expensive uh, potential long tail outcome for the patient and for the employer if they do a multiple embryo transfer to save money, then they'll have a multiple birth potential that's significantly higher, and then they'll have a very long and expensive NICU stay for the employer. <clears throat> the flywheel here essentially is that as they get more employers, they get more patients, they drive more volume to the fertility clinics, and the fertility clinics obviously like that. So they're creating scale and better relationships with their fertility clinics. They get uh, incremental data points on the patients going through their fertility treatments. So progeny can intervene and monitor them very closely. And obviously as they gain scale within each fertility clinic, they can negotiate better terms over time. Mm -hmm. And then over the last couple of years, what they've done is they've actually in-housed the uh, the pharmacy side of things. So you, you have to take certain drugs while you're going through different fertility treatments. And so instead of the, the patients getting that, those drugs from third parties, now they're getting them through progeny and progeny's pharmacy benefit manager. So they have direct relationships with the drug manufacturers. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about these like the robust networks and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So they have this multi-sided network where they're tying in employers, they're dealing with the employers, um, employees, these patients, 
they're tying in with these fertility clinics and they're tying in with the uh, the drug manufacturers, right? So you've got kind of this like four-sided ecosystem with progeny sitting in the middle and then and them having to deal with all these different parties. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of like a Roku, right? Which sits in the middle of the the TV viewers and the content providers, the TV OEMs and these advertisers that are advertising against their inventory, right? Yep. So it's, it's difficult to build out. It's a lot of relationships you got to build out and you have to be good at a lot of different things. And those relationships and, and building up the skill across a lot of different disciplines is just is extremely difficult to do. And so I'm, I'm trying to use your framework that we discussed earlier to, to basically walk in your footsteps to see how you were interpreting this company. And you know, from, from, from my view, I would assume that this thing is founder led. And then if so, like, what do you love about the founder? And then, um, it kind of leads me to this kind of corollary question, which is, do you look for some sort of minimum in insider ownership or something like that, um, on top of a founder led business? Hmm. Yes, I think, uh, <laughs> it's a bad example. Um, so it's not founder led, is it? <laughs> Terrific. <It's> not- <laughs> so, it, the company is the amalgamation of a bunch of, a handful of different mergers over okay. time. So the former CEO actually came from WebMD Interesting. and then he stepped aside recently and they hired someone from within. And so, yeah, it's actually not founder-led i think it's the only company in my portfolio that's not founder-led and See, that's I a, did. But, but it's actually important because it shows that there's some level of flexibility within your process right because yeah. i think i think i think you have to have that because on one hand i think i think i tweeted this once where i said i you know sometimes i don't know why i just don't invest in founder-led businesses there's so many companies and if you shrink it to just founders i'm sure you still have enough of a universe to keep you entertained for a long time, but I do appreciate this flexibility where you say, look, like I want to only invest in these founder-led businesses, but if these companies that I find meet these certain criteria and maybe even exceed my expectations in one of these areas, like I'm willing to negotiate with myself. Yeah. So yeah, part of it is just, I made that change in my process after having already invested in Progeny and, and loving the business. So that's made, I, I, and that is a shortcoming of a filter like that is, is you're probably just going to, you're going to, I would miss a progeny now if, you know, if I hadn't had found it before, um, I want to find professional man. I want, I need a process to figure out how to identify a strong professional manager because the way, the reason I think founders outperform is not only, I mean, people talk about economic incentives and obviously founders are usually there, you know, they're obviously there for the beginning. And so there's a better chance that they've retained, you know, equity ownership and and economics if you've been there from the beginning versus if you joined later. But for me, it's really the mental or spiritual alignment, I guess, that you get with a founder that that they, I feel like they'll talk about, oh, this is, you know, the founder's life's work. Like this company is their baby. Like it's those type of, um, you know, they, they they're they're significantly more motivated than just like the money component of it like they really just their entire life is dedicated to this company and whatever that company 
pin is. And so I think that's really what it comes down to for me is that I want people who are just so all in on, on building this company because they're so passionate about the industry and they want to leave their mark on the world uh, more so than just, you know, making, you know, a few million bucks or, you know, a hundred million bucks or, or what have you. Right. Sometimes it might even be better. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I wonder if it's better to have, we'll call him like an industry, call him or her an industry professional that loves just the industry that they're in. And they love like the game, let's call it like the game of specialty retail or, you know, the game of, 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 of some sort of restaurant business. And sometimes leaders like that, that just see it as this game that they can win, that they know that they're good at are almost better than, than founders that might not have that experience or even the love of the industry itself. Mm. No, it's, it's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about it. Um, I mean, I think like the, the economic component is interesting as well. Um, it's, it's something I think about, like you mentioned, oh, is there, is there a minimum, you know, percentage ownership? I think the CEO, the founder should have to make more money, like significantly more money from their stake in the company than they can make through their salary or their bonus or their, right. or, or what have you. Um, the ratio of that, I don't know. I mean, I, I would prefer if this, the founder was one of the largest shareholders. Yeah. And I feel like for most companies, yeah, I don't know. I, I, the smallest ownership, other than obviously I mentioned Progeny, the, C, the current CEO was not a founder. The smaller, smallest ownership percentage we have in the portfolio is, I think, for Docebo, I think the CEO owns about 2% of the company. So, um, but yeah, I don't have a perfect framework on, on like what percentage like qualifies as, you know, a real owner operator. Have you read um, the, shoot, I think it's, it's like a biography of, uh, I just, it's just the, the, the life of the, um, founder of Hobby Lobby. No. I, forget, I, I, I forget what it's called. I read it last year and it's, and it's an incredible book. And, and I just kind of had a thought where like, I don't care if, if, if that guy founded Hobby Lobby, if he went to another business that was doing something similar, like that would be more interesting than like an existing founder. That's like, Hey, like I ran this business. I started this thing. It's like, no, I want the dude that crushed it, that loves this game. And that's coming in and, and do, trying to replicate the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we look at progeny, I'm going to go all the way back to your admission that you love TJX and the TJ, the TJX companies. Like when I look at TJX, I don't see any of the criteria (laughs) that you now have. (laughs) Like you want 30% growth. TJX does like maybe 7% per year. Um, so, so again, like, what is, what is your, what is your fascination with this business? Cause like people obviously are allowed to evolve and adapt. And I'm not trying to say like, you know, one way or the other, but I want to know why you're so like intrigued about this business. Cause I, I haven't studied it at all. Yeah. So, I mean, I think investors need to see a lot of companies and the, the reason I say that is I see like early interns and, and analysts 
they get obsessed with whatever the kind of like the first companies, the first good companies they research. Um, they're over obsessed because they haven't seen or over intrigued or they hmm. think the competitive is stronger yeah. than it actually is because they haven't seen that many companies. And that was true for me early on as well. TJX, I, I, I just love the business. It was my first deep dive I did. So it's like, there's some nostalgia there. I still think it's a great business. Obviously I wouldn't invest in it today just because it's super mature and off price retail is just highly penetrated in, in the US. But what makes them particularly interesting, I think is just, they have these relationships with all of these apparel and other types of suppliers, right? Being the scaled leader in off price means that they're the preferred inventory or like distressed inventory liquidation channel in the US. And because of the travel treasure hunt nature of the TJ Maxx experience, there isn't probably quite as much brand dilution as if, you know, maybe um, if there was a dedicated, you know, Ralph Lauren section, or if it was online, it'd be easier for consumers to just say, hey, I'm going to wait until, you know, this season's apparel, this line is is in TJ Mac Max or is, is online for me to like, if it's searchable, then I think it's more commoditized. And so they've based on the treasure hunt experience, I think they've uh, helped the suppliers maintain their brand equity a little bit better and just providing a massive amount. Like there's no better value in the entire retail space than TJ Maxx because they're providing, you know, high quality brands, sometimes even luxury brands at a massive discount to what you were able to get that for through the branded channel or through the re- like the, the primary retail, like in-season retail channel, you know, one, two, three, four months ago. Um, so yeah, there's just, there's no other, like, it's just, it's win-wins across the board and just massive value for the consumer, massive value for the, for the suppliers as well. And hugely profitable for TJ Maxx. There's a lot in that, that sounds like Ollie's bargain outlets. And I don't know if you've looked at that business. I think um, Alex at the science of, of hitting, um, he he wrote a deep dive on that. But it sounds kind of like the Ollie's thing where it's it's all about the treasure hunt and they've got all these, you know, partners, uh, supply partners, and they've got massive distribution and, you know, kind of the whole thing. You get you get the treasure hunt feel of, of finding these bargains. What's, you know, when you, when you go in and you kind of look at TJ Maxx and the competitive positioning, like, how do you then kind of suss out like, okay, like what makes them better than let's say Ollie's that does something similar, or maybe, maybe they don't do things as similar as I think they do. Hmm. I don't know. I haven't, I didn't spend time on Ollie's when I was doing my research on the space. It was mostly TJX versus Ross stores. Yeah. And so I was also, you know, that was, I was like 22 and very, very early in my investment career. So I, I probably wasn't as exhaustive of doing my competitive analysis, but for me, I mean, it was, it was scaled, right. Cause that, that's, that's the flywheel, like the scale yeah. means the big suppliers, they can take on all of your inventory, right. So you can, you, they're basically like a one-stop shop liquidation um, partner. And so, yeah, there it's, there's a scale advantage there. And so that's why I think they're probably more slightly more competitively advantaged than like a Ross stores. Um, 
but yeah, the, I, there's probably not a mass like Ross has done tremendously well also. So I don't think there's like a massive difference between the two mm-hmm. other than just like incremental scale. Right. I want to go back to um, your time at, at, at Shaw Spring in the sense of you developing um, the kind of term and, and maybe, maybe we can call this a framework of ecosystem control. And um, I want to, I want to preface the discussion with, with, with this first question on the difference between ecosystem control and maybe just outright network effects. And like, maybe what are the ways in which they're different? Um, And how did you end up getting to this idea of ecosystem control? Like what was, what was the process in terms of researching? Was it just kind of looking back through case studies and seeing like, oh, hey, like these things have, you know, ABC in common, and maybe I can put all this under this nice umbrella term, ecosystem control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the origin of ecosystem control was basically we were sitting in the conference room of our, our, our first office in Boston, and we were talking about competitive advantage and I think it was maybe Dennis brought up, like, how, how do you guys think about competitive advantage? And I was just like, I had been developing this framework just kind of like on a, on a piece of paper where I had mapped out the company and like all of its different constituents, like the government and its relationship with the government relationship. I guess it's not really direct relationship, but it's kind of like an, an indirect relationship with competitors. And then like the direct relationships with employees and, and suppliers and other types of partners and customers and whatnot. And I had listed, I was always annoyed that there were like 50 different types of competitive advantages because I really like to simplify things and, and bucket things. That's just how my brain works. And so I was trying to take this long list of competitive advantages that I had heard of over the years, network effects, barriers to entry, um, you know, intellectual property, patents, whatever. And so I was trying to bucket these into... I guess I, I must have found some pattern between like, okay, every single one of these competitive advantages has something to do with um, the company's relationship with other parties in its ecosystem. And so I just, I, I mapped out the ecosystem and then just started bucketing different competitive advantages under each. And so that's where, as I continue to think about that, it just made more sense to me. And I mean, I had read, you know, some Porter's five forces type of stuff. Like it's really just kind of uh, um, like a, an evolution of, of Porter's five forces. Like it's not tremendously different than that. It just, it, it takes it more from like a, a, it's a value creation and win-win type of approach to Porter's five forces, which is much more, it seems like a little bit more antagonistic to me where you're talking about like power over suppliers power over all parties versus like how do you create value and win-win relationships with these different parties right so i think that's the biggest difference for me is like i don't think of i think of power like exerting power on another party is just you're asking for trouble over the long term right like when people talk about like oh you know oracle's databases have such high um you know, stickiness and switching costs, they can just continue to raise prices. And it's like, okay, well, like all of their customers know, there's no wonder why like all of their customers hate them. Right. Yeah. And like, that's 
sustainable over long term, like especially with technology and how fast technology is changing, like someone will make a product where, you know, their product or their service is directly linked to helping people, you know, move off of Oracle databases or like some new, um, you know, cloud native database will make it really, really easy to switch, right? Because there's just so much value to unlock there. And so that's kind of how I think about things is that's how it was originated. And then that's, it's really just kind of like an evolution or an improvement upon Porter's five forces. I think that's incredibly insightful, especially that, that, that piece on, on, on power. And the first question I have there is like, are there instances where that model of power, let's say one had, you know, one, one company has power over, over the other. Are there any instances where like that is, acceptable or that is maybe advantageous um, given like a specific industry or something. And I guess another way of framing that is like, is that always applicable? Like maybe in some instances, having power is good, even if it's a win-lose. Um, yes. I mean, you always want them to have the power. You just don't want them to exert it or like act exploit on it. the, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to exploit the power um, in terms of times where that's a good thing like maybe in like a monopoly type business like there's this one company eastern tobacco in egypt that has a monopoly over the entire um like cigarette and cigar manufacturing uh industry in all of egypt and they export like i think it's like 98 percent of cigarettes or something like that some something wild where if you've got some type of you know government sponsored monopoly if you will like power in that instance seems appropriate right because like you're not necessarily screwing somebody else over yeah. if you're the only person doing it it could be fine i mean there's there's a lot of instances where i think like natural monopolies exist and and can provide better customer experiences Mm -hmm. but yeah it's when you start to like you know push pricing on your customers and you're maybe you're not paying your suppliers you're, you're continuing to like extend those to the point where it becomes um annoying or antagonistic with your suppliers like it really comes down to exploiting i don't think there's anything wrong with natural monopolies i think i think scale if used correctly in a monopoly set provide a lot of value as long as you're using your scale to pass that along to to other parties in your ecosystem yeah so like with pro as they continue to gain scale with their fertility clinics and and purchasing power with their fertility clinics and their drug manufacturers they pass along some of those savings to their customers in in the form of lower prices and they take some of it for themselves. So that's that's um, where you know you can create win-win relationships and and scale can continue to provide value to all parties. Yeah. So just kind of going off on a tangent, the uh, the company that 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 tobacco company it's called Eastern Company ticker is E A S T and yeah I don't I don't own it but it's you know sp speaking of the power of monopolies like this business is unbelievable it uh 21 free cash flow yield 14 dividend yield uh does 30 operating margins and will probably grow 
GDP plus two to five percent for the next, you know, five to six years. Um, and the Egyptian government owns 50 percent. So it's pretty nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't trade in Egypt, though, because interactive brokers won't let me. Yeah. So, I mean, that's part of why that free cash flow yield exists, right? It's just kind of liquidity dynamics. Yeah. Let's discuss the idea of ecosystem control over time and how ecosystem control maybe scales inside of a company. So one of the things that I really enjoy about, about your work and kind of what you do is, is you focus on the earlier stage growth companies. A lot of the times um, they either are like new IPOs or just, or just recent IPOs, maybe in like six to 18 months range. How do you process and, and, and maybe model out a young company that doesn't have ecosystem control, but in your eyes, has the ingredients to scale into a business that demonstrates that? Hmm. Um, so let me talk about some of these early stage companies. They do exhibit, in, at least in my perspective, ecosystem right. control. In other people's perspective, they maybe disagree a little bit. So like, I think I always bring up Carvana and we can talk about that one and and progeny and maybe another one. And then I'll try to think of a company that I invested in that didn't. Um, so maybe need a couple seconds on that. But like with Carvana, I kind of thought they had ecosystem control from the beginning because I compared them to basically their two sets of competitors. One set was traditional offline legacy dealers, brick and mortar dealers. And then the other set was these other upstarts in the online retail space. So it's an easier comparison. So we'll talk about the, the online players first. So Carvana had a first mover advantage. They were spun out of drive time. So they were able to leverage those resources and, and know-how. So they had kind of like an unfair advantage from the beginning. And because of that, they were able to scale significantly quicker and invest into more asset intensive operations. Hmm. So while Vroom and Shift were taking a more asset led approach because they're very capital constrained, Carvana was investing upfront in assets which would create the best customer experience and would create barriers to entry for anybody else trying to replicate their experience. So in our, and then when we started investing, even though there was a, it was a tiny per percentage of the market was online. Yeah. We calculated that of all the cars that were online retailed, Carvana had 90% market share. So they were nine times larger than Vroom, Shift, and any other smaller online retailers combined at that point in time. This is like mid to late 2018. So we thought based off of the data points, that market share and the approaches and the markets that they were in relative to the other players that they had ecosystem control over and massive fed advantage over the, the peer group of online retailers. When it comes to the brick and mortar players, while, while Carbon was significantly smaller than all of them, the ecosystem control came from their lower cost structure and the ability, not necessarily that they were always going to take advantage of their, the, the cost structure advantages they have, 
but we estimated at the time that they had a thousand to two thousand dollars i forget what the exact number was maybe fifteen hundred in lower real estate and personnel costs than than a carmax and so if for whatever reason carvana chose to pass all of those cost savings mm-hmm. along to the consumer the offline retailers would have to wipe out essentially all of their operating profit per unit and go from creating, you know, I don't know, whatever, let's call it a $2 billion in EBITDA down to zero in order to compete on price. If Carvana chose to exploit that cost structure advantage via lower ASPs. So there was no way in which CarMax or any of the other offline players would be able to compete without destroying their entire operating model and their PL and their cash flow and their EPS and their shareholders would kill them. So right. that's kind of like the basics of why, even you know, at a hundred thousand units or fifty thousand units, whatever it was at the time, we still thought that Carvana had ex- and exhibited ecosystem control against their competitors. There isn't really like a supplier's there aren't suppliers in for a used car retailer in the same way that there are for many companies because they're buying from auctions and they're buying from customers. So that, that part isn't, is a little more nuanced and then versus their customers. I mean, they provided cheaper vehicles with home delivery that you could return buy from the convenience of your home. It was just a significantly better customer experience than, right. Than going, dealership so we thought that that yeah we thought that the it was a pretty win-win relationship between the customers and carvana itself the only aspect that we felt they didn't exhibit ecosystem control was on the financing side of the business so they were heavily reliant on ally financial to finance um inventory and to finance loans to their consumers and so if anything were to happen with that ally relationship or if anything were to happen to ally that would have materially impacted their business negatively. Yeah. And so that in addition to them burning cash and if there were any, um, you know, issues in the credit markets or just economic, um, volatility overall, like that could have impacted them as well. So from a competitive standpoint, we thought that they exhibited massive ecosystem control and then from, the ally and from the cash burning perspective, those were kind of the areas in which we were looking out for. So they didn't exhibit perfect ecosystem control, but um, they exhibited, you know, I don't know, 80, 90% of the way there and 100% on the competitive side. And then, yeah, I guess this is a good example. So as they scaled, they're able to, um, you know, reach profitability and um, create more partners to finance loans and inventory. And so, uh, that's that's a big piece I look for is like concentration of the ecosystem. So if like a company has one or two massive customers or massive suppliers or massive partners that they go through. So like I was looking at this company AI Inside, and yep, yep. they like fifty or sixty percent of their revenue coming from one partner, and that partner would onboard customers. There's a software company. It's AI OCR. So it's like um, like. Uh, text upload and, and whatnot from like uh, physical documents what is what does ocr stand so, for real quick um oh, that's a great question 
it's like ocular i love optical the, character i love these japanese yeah. market um micro caps gosh these things are yeah yeah it wasn't a micro file but basically they had now it part- is <laughs> yeah they had one partner that was like 60 percent of their business was going through this partner like yeah. a, a channel partner and they basically weren't they were onboarding customers and then weren't doing any customer service or support which is basically you know what you're supposed to do as, as a channel partner yeah and so all customers started churning all at once uh, i think maybe after their their con i think they onboarded a ton at once had this like maybe six month or 12 month contract and then they all came off and so like all of their revenue um just disappeared overnight because it was all coming from this one shitty partner so stock uh, chart is a freaking murder scene too yeah yeah no, i mean it's, it's it's been bad Whew. so those are that's from an ecosystem control perspective like a really easy filter is just trying to understand like okay like what's your supplier concentration what's your partner concentration what's your customer concentration i really don't invest in many companies that have more than maybe 15 percent of of their business coming from any particular suppliers can be different but like customer or partner concentration on that side is can be can be pretty ugly sometimes so that's just like a risk management um approach so even even if you're looking in these newer company spaces right let's like these new ipos companies that have launched in let's say the you know the last two to three years you still want to see an element of of them creating ecosystem control or even having let's call it you know like a minor league version of an ecosystem control before investing um and and i guess the alternative to that right is the more venture maybe seed series a type deal where it's like okay this company might have you know they've got these elements that could be system control they don't have them in place yet like they haven't built the puzzle yet but if they do it correctly then they've got it and so what you're saying is you're coming from the standpoint of like i want to invest when the puzzle, if you will, is like 85 to 90% built. And I can basically see the ecosystem control. I don't have to take the bet that it's gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want them to have a diversified kind of like network or, or ecosystem. So like yeah. all of those customers, buyer, partner, all that, all that stuff I was just talking about. And then it should really be like, why, why can incumbents not compete? And that's mm-hmm. often for like innovators dilemma or that like that profit per vehicle um, conundrum. I mean, cause like you, you, your investors for like a, a cash flowing dividend paying company, like a CarMax or any of these large incumbents across many verticals, like they have the expectation that like the dividend is going to go up every year by, you know, whatever percentage EPS is going to grow at you right. know, 10%. So like, you can't really change that and like pull a rug out under them um, with respect to their expectations there. So like you have all of these, the, all of these limitations to them, all these barriers and, and bottlenecks to these incumbent companies making the right decision for what they um, should do long-term, which goes back to our discussion of like why, why founders can outperform because they can take that kind of, especially if they own a big chunk of the company, they can take that, those types of risks and you know a reed hastings can pivot from you know shipping dvds to streaming to owning content in-house which are just you know two massive regime changes that you got to give them a lot of credit for mm-hmm. um, and a lot of professional management in these cash flowing dividend paying eps growth businesses they just can't always make the same type of of changes so like the the incumbents there should be a reason why the incumbent cannot easily 
compete without, you know, making a lot of sacrifices and then just like approach they like the company I'm investing in should just have such a more long-term and unique approach to how they're building their business than similar kind of upstarts. So it could be, yeah, they're, they're investing upfront in assets. They're more thoughtful about culture. They've got this, this, you know, multi-sided network of partners and other players that they're building out and they've got these relationships, uh, et cetera. Can you give me an example of a company that you thought had ecosystem control? And then we can do just like a, like a postmortem on, on why that company failed to, to kind of solidify that standing. Yeah, I think Just Eat is probably the best example of that for me. So I started looking at the, so I mean, we had done a lot of in, like internet marketplaces at Shawspring and we started that, I don't know, maybe, probably from when I started, so 2015. Yeah. And I started looking at these like food, you know, restaurant marketplaces circa 2017. And at that point in time, I mean, I, I never would have uh, thought that the, the market would look like what it does today. But I mean, back then it was like, just eat i think delivery hero might have just ipo'd Maytuan wasn't public you had grubhub as the only player in the u.s pretty much and then takeaway was just in the netherlands and everyone was doing these asset light marketplaces and everyone talked about like stickiness and the first mover advantage and uh the recurringness of the revenue and how difficult it is for you know second and third uh, place players to compete in these local markets and they were all you know 25 35 45 even sometimes 55 percent EBITDA margin businesses and so I got caught up in all of that and invested in Just Eat at Shawspring and I missed a lot of different things I mean one they were professional managers versus I mean, Grubhub had Maloney as the founder and then Takeaway had Yitza. So it was the only professional management team in the space that was publicly traded. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know what in particular was, I don't, I don't know anything like directly about them that made them well, like, you know, less sophisticated or less talented, but that is probably important to note that they were professional management because if, if things weren't to work out, like, they all left and got, you know, different jobs pretty easily. Right. So that's, I think like the, the, the CEO, if you're a founder, you can't just quit and go, I mean, you can, but it's just like, it's, it's rare for you to say, okay, this, this didn't work out. I'm just gonna go try something else. Right. That just doesn't happen. So I think that's probably there's, there's something there with respect to that and just eat. But I mean, the, the main thing I missed was just these, these, these regime changes that were going to happen in the industry where, it was in the process of going from asset light marketplace being the de facto business model to vertically integrated delivery. And then, you know, this, this cloud kitchens owning inventory thing that's happening now with, um, you know, cloud kitchens and these DMARTs that delivery heroes rolling out and whatnot on the convenience side and the grocery mm -hmm. side and the side. So those were kind of, when I reflect back, the, the ecosystem control and your competitive advantage is really only relevant if there's not a massive regime shift uh, that's, that's, that's happening. And when there's a regime shift or a platform shift happening, that is what people talk, to, talk about when they say, oh, like the S-curve is like jumping to a new S-curve, right? And that's so step function, basically. When, that, yeah, when that happens, that opens up opportunity for 
a new player to to take a massive amount of market share as consumers are shifting from the old platform or the old regime to the new platform or the new regime. Yep. Your your advantages that you had in the old regime are just not anywhere near as relevant in the new regime. So like that's kind of what happens there. Well, and the other thing too, and this is from um, Andrew Chen's book, The Cold Start Problem. And I think I think he said this pretty well. It's if you have something change in the industry or, or in the market, let's say if you're a business and you're this young high growth startup, you know, you could say like, look, we've got these network effects. And it's like, if those network effects are present for you, then what that means is that they're present for other companies as well. Like they are out there for the taking. Um, if, if that other competitor can execute better than you can, and it kind of goes in line with what you said, like if there's this massive market regime change or this massive industry change, like the companies that say like, oh, like we're at the inflection point of this, like this thing's great for us. It's like that also exists for every other competitor. And so it's not like this unique competitive advantage where it's like, oh, like we're at this inflection point. Cause that's like one of the things that you see in a lot of these European e-commerce plays where Europe is very far behind the U.S. in a lot of online adoption for different like purchase categories. And you'll see in these decks, it's like, oh, like, you know, we're at 5%. And over the next 10 years, like it'll go from 5% to 24%. And like, that's where we're going to win. But that function exists for every competitor. And so is that really an advantage? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially like within the food delivery space. I mean, they talked about like, one of the one of the advantages they would talk about was like okay like the restaurant doesn't want to be burned burdened by all of these um, these tablets because like that was basically how you how you gathered orders back then was you had like you know one or two different tablets from from Uber Eats and and Grubhub or Just Eat or or Deliveroo or what have you and they'd be like okay look, there's only room for enough tablets like the, the restaurant doesn't not does not want another tablet especially not another tablet that's only going to generate like you know one order a day or couple orders a week or something and so that was kind of the scale advantage and like a barrier for a new a new competitor yeah and what we i guess what we another thing that we didn't see coming was that the like the pos players and like companies like olo and these other restaurant software providers would kind of they would become aggregators of the the delivery players themselves Hmm. and also that like by offering delivery they unlocked a whole new piece of supply that had never been on the marketplace before. So you would have thought, okay, well, like someone, a delivery player will come in and they'll offer the restaurant a new tablet. And um, they're just going to be going after the same restaurant that already have a tablet and are, are, are getting tons of demand from Just Eat in London. But what they did was they realize that there's a whole segment of restaurants that are not doing any delivery at all because they don't want to do in-house delivery. Yeah. And so that creates its own value proposition and its own network effect where they were just going after a different segment. They weren't going after the mom and pop, you know, kebab pizza um, restaurants. They were going after these chains and these chains have, are doing massive amounts of volume and they have really, really loyal customers. So you know, an Uber Eats could go into, or a delivery could go into London, side up McDonald's, you know, do a bunch of co-marketing with McDonald's, drive mm-hmm. all of this demand and acquire all of these uh, consumers and then use that as kind of like a Trojan horse into yep. then drive demand on like the core 
marketplace, the core restaurants that Just Eat has historically, um, you know, been pretty sticky with. Well, and it even goes all the way back to to one thing you alluded to, which is a part of your process is being able to look out and say, you know, where do I see this industry or market going in 10 years? Like, how do I think it's going to shake out? And And for me, you know, again, I'm not I am the dumbest person in the room on a lot of things. And, and this food delivery space is, is, is one of them, but I wouldn't be able to wrap my head around how that space would look in 10 years. And maybe that's just because I don't have a lot of the mental models or I don't have the knowledge needed, but that's one of those where like that right there, that filter really comes in handy. Like if I can't like that, that, that space would be very hard for me to say with any degree of confidence, like, oh, like in 10 years, food delivery is going to look like this and ghost kitchens are going to be this and it's going to be this percentage. It's, it's like, that's a very hard bet to make. Yeah, no, it's totally. And like, I didn't have that approach back then and knew significantly less about food delivery to try and make those types of guesses. I have more guesses today. But yeah, it's just, it's a really dynamic space. It's gone through, you know, a handful of regime shifts in basically like two years, more innovation and changes in the business model than are probably occurring in in many markets. But yeah, I mean, if I, yeah, if I can't have an understanding of, of all the, like what the perfect type of customer experience and what the value chain and technology that's available and, um, is going to be needed to facilitate that customer experience and that value chain. Like it's just, it's going to be too difficult because you're, yeah, I'll, I'll get sideswiped by a regime change that I, I just didn't see coming. Exactly. And it also like, if you, if you take it one step further, like for every, we'll call it like percentage that you, that you lose confidence in your ability to kind of forecast where that's going to look like this, uh, Cliff, Cliff Sosen, you know, kind of, um, alluded to this idea of like, there's a certain percentage chance that whatever business that you're investing in, like over the next year or over the next five years, like the way that they do business just doesn't work anymore. Um, or it just gets disrupted and, 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 and there's no need. And so like the greater uncertainty you have, like the more you should tax whatever valuation method you use. Like if you have a DCF, like you should tax that higher because of the uncertainty, um, which I think is just such a really good mental model um, for thinking about like how to value those opportunities. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's an interesting take. Where do you look for your ideas? Because you're a global investor. We actually started our um, professional relationship sharing a Japanese micro cap idea. So I know that you look all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh- not, if I'm not stealing my ideas from you, then I mean I've I've have a built out list of companies basically across internet that meet the founder owner operator and growth uh, filter, and then kind of like offline, so just healthcare, consumer, industrials, real estate, financials, anything that that in in those non tech spaces, um, and like the the growth, the founder owner operator stuff is still important, but the growth I kind of I taper the growth a little bit because so it's really more of like a I want top decile growers and top decile growth in internet and software and tech broadly just looks different than yeah. in more traditional capital intensive businesses. Yep. So I start there and then yeah, I mean t- I talk to people like you. I do run periodic screens. I try to watch all of the recent IPOs. So I have websites that show all the the new IPOs that are coming out. In, what websites you know, are those Europe. by the way? 
Cause I've, 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 I've got a few and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to list them. So like for, for Europe, actually for the Nordics, I do IPO hub.io. And again, I'm not, I'm not sponsored by any of these except for ticker, but I use that for screeners, but I, IPO hub is where I get the Nordics. And then for the rest, like, I'm just, I, I just Google, I'm like Japanese mother's index, new IPOs. <laughs> yeah. It's Google. Um, Usually for US, I usually use IPO scoop. Okay. That'll show the last 100 or 200 IPOs. Um, and then, yeah, I'm like, I'm constantly doing screens by different sectors and countries. So I'll just, I'll, I'll continuously screen for, uh, for like revenue growth and like probably minimum revenue. So I'm, I don't really invest in like super small stuff like sub. And that's probably part of the ecosystem control um, dynamic is, is there, there's like scale is important. So I'm not really investing in, you know, companies with maybe less than, I don't know. I don't even know if the smallest company I've ever invested in by revenue, maybe 50 million in, in revenue. So I'll, I'll screen by those and I'll just do Japan, China, offline, U S or and Europe software. And I'll continuously look at, be looking for those. And some of, some of the IPOs will pop up there too, but, um, Twitter, I'll look for, I'll follow people that I know typically look at similar types of companies that I, that I look at. Um, and then I just, I'll, yeah, I'll just do a quick Google. Does, does the growth um, in the S1 or the F1 kind of meet what I'm looking for historically? And then I pretty much just try and talk to every single company on that list. So I'll, I'll, I'll basically every day I'll be sending out emails to companies on my list that I haven't spoken to before and just be trying to set up with intro calls with management um, or IR. Yeah, I just, this is completely off topic, but I wish there was an app or a function that allowed you, like, you know how in LinkedIn you can do like the one click apply for like a job yeah. or something like that. There, there's gotta be someone out there listening or someone that's building something where you could do a one click, like say, Hey, like, can I meet with you? Um, because it's just so like, I mean, maybe I'm just being a little bit annoying, but it's, I mean, it is kind of time consuming trying to find the IR page and then trying to find the contact us and then writing out the email. Like if there was a one click getting contact where it's like, Hey, click this, we'll send you an email with dates available. Like that would be unbelievable. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, someone had a really good process where, um, they basically had like a Calendly type of thing for their for their IR setup. They just they'd send you a link and they'd be like, pick any time here that you want. No, that'd be the so most nice. annoying. And I I literally almost tweeted about this the other day. I was so annoyed about it. Is that is it when you go to the IR site and they just have the like contact form and you fill out the contact form. You're like, great, you know, they'll email me in like a, a, you know in the next couple of days or a week or whatever, and then you just never hear from them. Yep. Like just if. Anyone investor relations is listening, just like, please just put a contact email on your IR page so that we can just like, you know, copy paste into our Gmail and, and, you know, email it and then follow up. It just, I send that contact form and then you just never hear from again. And it's just out of sight, out of mind. You know, what was um, nuts yeah. is there was a Norwegian company that we, um, it's, it's very, very small. So I'm not going to say the name. Um, but we, we researched it and we, and we invested in it. Um, and the CEO founder had his cell phone number on the IR page. 
And so I wow. just, I just shot him a text. He had iMessage cause it was, it was like some European number, but he had iMessage. I was like, sweet. So I shot him a text. I was like, Hey, can I set up a call with you? And he shot back. He's like, yeah, sure. Like how does next week work? I'm like, man, this is unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable, but yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't scale of course. Um, but if you, if you were to take kind of a inventory of where you find ideas the most interesting from a geographical standpoint, where does, where does that fall? Like, I assume it's not in the U S and maybe I'm just biased, but like, I assume it's somewhere outside of the U S. I mean, it depends on what you define as interesting. Like if you're just talking about like the founder led growth stories, like they're disproportionately U S and, and China. And so, but that also means that that's where everyone else is searching and both of those markets do pretty good English IR. So it depends on what you define as interesting. If you're talking about like unique stuff with, you know, massive upside that other people don't own, then yeah, you got to look outside of like the US and, and China tech. So like what's, yeah, what's most interesting to me going forward is, is growth stories that other people don't own. So it's, yeah, Nordics, Poland, Japan, South Korea, Australia, um, China offline stuff. Because most people focus on China ADRs, and so it's mostly China tech, China e-commerce. Uh, people are, fo- I mean, most growth funds are focused on U.S. and European internet. Yep. Yeah, U.S., European, Chinese internet and software. And so, yeah, what's most interesting, what's most unique, is the stuff that falls outside of that. It's growth, interesting, growthy offline stories like progeny and infertility. Um, innovative industrial properties in, in cannabis. I own Jamaoju and the trades in Hong Kong. It's a Chinese uh, restaurant operator. So yeah, Japan too. I, mean, I don't think like any particular, I mean, China's obviously, at least in the tech ecosystem is super insulated from com- competition globally. So I mean, some countries do have, you know, unique, unique nuances that, um, that provide barriers to entry. But I mean, obviously within China, it's, it's super competitive. So that, that it just helps, um, you know, avoid international competition, but I don't think any particular market is more interesting than another one. I think there's, yeah. you're probably, you're, you're, you're getting more risk if you, if you look in other countries for sure. Yeah. Um, like, like China, Russia, Kazakhstan. So, yeah. I mean, most in- with most interesting and unique that, that don't exhibit you know massive risk characteristics japan south korea nordics poland yeah once you start doing russia india china you start to get into to other types of risks so yeah yeah russia is a hot topic i love tweeting about russia because it just yeah it <laughs> evokes it evokes some primal hatred in the fintwit community or just like disgust it's 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 actually quite fun um but you know this is this has been a sweet conversation and i i actually uh think it's one that we can have again at some point because there's a lot we can discuss um because i think we i think i think we do share such a similar view on 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 investing and kind of how to approach it um i'm going to wrap up with kind of a couple questions uh, the first one is where can people go to find out more about you? I know you're on Twitter and if you want to mention um, Tenebrist website, if you've, if you've got one. Yeah. Um, tenebristlp.com um, info at tenebristlp.com. My, my Twitter at Tenebrist global. Those are all good places to start. Awesome. And then last question I have for you, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? 
Such a good question. Oh, um, uh, probably my grandfather. Nice, great dude. Um, yeah, love spending time with him, and I miss him a lot. Awesome. Well, James, this has been so much fun, man. I can't wait to release this. Um, I wish you the best of luck for the rest of the year. Um, and I look forward to continuing our relationship and, uh, good luck and have a great rest of your week. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks so much for having me on. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.